0: Bibles up to Titus, I want to kind of, I was thinking about this afternoon, we made a transition uh, at our training center and, and church back in uh, Lebanon, and I wanted to, uh, I, I just, I would love it to, to be what we're doing here this week, um, I, I call it almost the, uh, it's almost the uh, the competition, it's you almost at times under the impression uh, you come into a service and it's, it's uh, sometimes the pastor is trying to fix the congregation or, or trying to fix you or you're coming trying to be fixed or anything goes as far as I've walked into services and, and hear the old timer look at me and say, you know, give it to us. I'm like, are we going to assault you? I mean, what, what are you talking about? You know? and it, I just like to move away from all of that this week, honestly, just flat out move away from all of this, uh, that, that kind of an approach. It was years ago, I was in college and uh who ended up becoming my mentor, Dr. Manley, was speaking. And his whole approach was, was, was coming in and, and let's just gather around the word and be open for him to speak. And we're all a body of Christ. And let's seek together. Let's be open for what he wants to do in our life. Let's consider what he's speaking in the word and how it can transform us. If you need to respond, I want to give you that kind of an opportunity. Uh, if you want to do business in your seat, I'm fine with that as well. Uh, let's let's get after in this evening. Number two. What I've learned over the past six to seven months have been invaluable. I learned that the greatest tool of teaching is repetition. The greatest tool of teaching <laughs> is repetition. And so what we've done as a staff at our training center and church is, and we kind of just started doing it again. Dr. Manley was probably instituted this, but uh, I do four to six-week studies series studies kind of thing. Try to keep them in four to six weeks. So you come in the first week and you present a study about 40 minutes, give or take. If it goes longer, you blame the worship. So you about 40 minutes. <laughs> then the next week you come in, you take that 40 minute study and you truncate it down to about 25. And then you add the next verse. Then you come in the next week and you take that full study, which is about 40, 45 minutes, you truncate it, you squeeze it down to about 25, and then you have the next point. And then what we find out is the next week you come in, they get the first point. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. They get the first one, And then they totally, they catch up quicker. But it is. I mean, and i I felt this in my own life. And you listen to someone speak and it's so good. And you walk out of there and you like, wow, man, God just wrecked my life. He spoke to me. as wonderful. What do you speak on? I I don't know, but I'll hear next week, I'll hear next week, and so we want to begin this evening with a little bit of uh, review, uh, just for a few minutes, Paul comes into this area of Crete, uh, we know on his fourth missionary journey, and he's dealing with uh, the Jewish community there, as well as those who are in and among um, Gentiles, in and among the Jewish community, uh, probably somewhat separate. Um, but a church is established off of his ministry, we don't know what that looks like we don't know what happened when he came into Crete uh, we have an idea from looking at some of the other places uh, Acts chapter or, yeah, Acts chapter 19 is probably my favorite if you ever wanted to do a study on a church uh, the church in Ephesus is probably we have more about the church of Ephesus than any other church, even the church in Jerusalem we know when it started Acts chapter 19, we have Paul's letter back to the church Um, in uh, the letter to Ephesians. Later on, chapter 21, 22, he meets with the elders in Ephesus. And then, of course, we have the church in Ephesus in Revelation. So we have just all this information about Ephesus. And the church begins by Paul coming into town, and he's preaching and teaching like normal. There's this phenomenal display of movement of the Spirit. No one's ever seen anything like it. And um, the town ends up just, I mean, God just wrecks the place, just overturns the joint. Uh, in fact, what you end up having is is uh, as a result of the ministry there that was taking place that week, people who were in witchcraft and, and worshiping other gods bring their scrolls, you probably remember this, and, and they, they pile them in the town and burn them publicly, and uh, the value was calculated and reported in Acts 4, it came to 50,000 drachma. you know how much a drachma is? I don't either, it's 50,000, 50,000 drachma. No, drachma is one day's wage. So 50,000 days' wages. That is ridiculous. Now, we can't necessarily transpose that in in Crete, but man, something happened here. And a church is born, he leaves, and writes this letter back, and Titus is dealing with uh, discipleship and establishing church structure, and... This is the instructions on that. Now, the first chapter is crucial. There's the introduction. And Paul says now in verse 5 that he left Titus there for a reason. And it was to straighten out what was left unfinished. And apparently, obviously, he appoints the elders. But apparently, there is this issue that Paul is burning on. He deals with it in every church um, that, he, that the elders have to, be, have to be aware of and that Titus has to deal with. And it's this group of religious people. And as, as I noted this morning, I just thought that was so interesting. On all the things, I mean the culture in which they lived uh, the the, I mean it was such a such a depraved society. I mean when you have, it wasn't all over the empire, but when you have I mean people for entertainment purposes being fed to wild animals I mean society has gotten out of control a little bit. You know what I'm saying? And the sexual perversity and, and, and the drug use. And, I mean, it was just an absolutely deplorable society. It was worse and worse and worse and worse as it, uh, before it imploded. Of all the things that Paul could mention, saying, now listen, when we talk to the body, you have got to deal with this. He doesn't bring up any of that. Which, why that's such, for me, the elephant in the passage. is <laughs> okay. because that's the stuff we're most concerned with. That seems to be what we're so focused on. In fact, what he's most concerned is things we don't, typically, we don't typically bring up. And he's strong on it. He goes with it here. But in other passages, he goes as far as to say "Is cast, hey, grab people by the shirt and the, and the belt buckle and out of the church. We're not tolerating that here. If it's not about Jesus, we're not tolerating it. If what's coming out of our mouth and out of our teaching and, and what's flowing in our lives, if it's not the person, we're not interested in entertaining it at all. That's what he's getting at in this verse. And to present that, kind of what's going on in their culture, and why that was so prevalent, you understand, especially with Judaism, the only only relationship with God most of these people really had down pat was the old covenant relationship with God. Now, I dealt with some of this this last year in James as well. James, which is the first letter in our New Testament. that letter was written when there were basically the early church. Jerusalem had not been destroyed. It's about a decade after the death of Jesus. People were basically, the only Christians were basically Jews. Paul had not come around yet. And and James is trying to pastor and run it, a, a global church that was really in a small area that were made up of Jews coming out of Judaism. And so he's, in the, in the letter of James, which I shared with last time I was here, he's constantly dealing with this religious, this religious mindset. And we call it religious, but what it is, is it's an old covenant mindset that we call Christianity. So I've been playing with some, some, some visuals. Visuals seem to help people. And I love it when you walk into a church and people are like, you can hear them talking. You know, you don't know what they're saying. And you're like, oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> So there's an Old Covenant mindset, an Old Covenant relationship with God that is not Christian. It is how we walk with God in an Old Covenant when God was out there and I am here. It was the John the Baptist, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, those in the past kind of a framework of Christianity. And in that kind of relationship with God, God did not expect you to think as he thinks or or feel as he feels. He was do as he does God gave the law, which is, a, which is the standard of righteousness, the righteousness that God revealed in written form. But that was not the end game. One of my favorite passages is where he's talking to, um, I think it's Jeremiah 29, or there's 11 in there, there's a, two or three of them right in there. But he's talking to Jeremiah and he says, the days are coming when this law is going to be taken off of stone tablets and it's going to be, it's going to be put here. And you're not just going to do the right thing. You're going to feel the way he feels. You're going to see the way that he sees. You're going to be driven by what he's driven by. Now, the, the way that we would process that in a setting like this, which is, it can be uncomfortable. Can we still call ourselves the body of Christ? Can we, can we, still, stay, can we still say that we're the housing of his presence when we don't feel like he feels? When we don't see like he sees, when we don't have his priorities, that seems to be the crux issue. And I've given this illustration my entire ministry, continually coming back to the sheep and the goats passage. When Jesus coming out of Mount, you know, coming to the Mount of Olives out of Jerusalem, scaring the disciples to death, saying that the temple is going to be destroyed and they, they get up there and they begin to pester him about that and he starts talking about the day of judgment in Matthew's account and he says I'm telling you man it's going to be terrible and I'm going to separate people like you would separate sheep and goats and the whole context of the conversation is not on ungodly worldly people it's on religious people who pretend to be Christian they're just deceived There's are just going separate them And he says many of them are going to come and say, I preached, I prophesied. You guys have read the passage. I healed. I went to church. I didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. I read my Bible. I was a Nazarene. You know, I didn't do drugs. I'm not a bad guy. Christianity isn't about being a bad guy. It's not even being about a good guy. It's about being him. And that's the whole issue. And when he looks at the goats, he says, and he says, I'll say to them, you know, and, and he goes into how they how they looked at the poor, how they felt about the lost, how they how they walked with the people in their, he just says, listen, I'm a sheep, you're a goat. You don't feel the way that I feel. What drives me doesn't drive you. What I'm passionate about, you're not passionate about. Those are the, those are the kind of, those are the fruit markers that I think we need to be aware of in our own life. What drives me? What am I passionate about? Where's my heart? That's where my treasure is. So when we look at an old covenant relationship with God, none of that was present. There was a whole different standard of righteousness in the old covenant. The old covenant standard of righteousness is obedience to the law. I don't kill, I don't lie, I don't steal. But when you come into a new covenant relationship with God, which means God is no longer up there but he moves down into the confines of my body. He wants to make me whole. See, he said it this morning. He, he wants us to be a holy people. I've, I've, if you get into the New Testament, and I've, I've shared this with teens, it's always hysterical. I don't know if they... We, we tend to talk about Jesus came into my heart. You yeah, know, Kind of. <laughs> You know? But they also say something like, oh my grandma, she's in my heart. I'm like, no, that's, that's gross. No, she's not. That's, not. that's weird. No, she's not. She's in a grave. Yeah. Now her memory, that's fine. But that's, see, we've got to make a distinction. because That's not Christianity. I don't, have, I don't carry the memory of her. If, think about this. If you are a Christian, you literally have God living in your body. Like Literally. This is so graphic that Paul says to the church in Corinth, don't go having sexual relations with a prostitute. Because if you do, you're trying to unite Christ's body, physical body, with a prostitute. You're like, really? That's what he means. Yes. Well, you mean these appendages are no longer mine? Imagine that. Seriously, imagine, imagine that. Imagine I tell the Sadines. This is a true story. I'm at a camp talking like this and I look at this teen in the front row who's just like confused. He said this confused look, he's staring at me. And I'm like, if you're a Christian, whatever goes through your mind goes through his mind. And he's like oh. But yeah, literally. He goes through what you go through. He feels what you feel. And as you learn and you walk with him and you learn to sense his mood and sits his voice coming through you and there's scriptures he brings and there's thoughts that he brings that are so young. That's this kind of a evil. He's not out there anymore. Amen. He's here. He's with me. He hasn't left me. This is the message that he's talking about. Now in verse 10, this is contrasted and, and, and you have to really kind of listen to the language. This is, they're, they're the circumcision group. They're not evil. They're not serial killers. They're not going to come in and shoot up the place. They're worse because they're going to come in and they're going to spread a message that is not the message. Now, when you get into the passage itself, and we're going to be some more content tonight, some more structure. Verse ten is the identity of the religious person, of the old covenant relationship with God. People who are imposters. They are they are whitewashed tombs. They they. They're just not Christian. Not, they're not evil. They're not bad. But they're old covenant. They don't have his nature. They don't have his eyes. They're not driven by what he's driven by. There's no passion, excitement, focus. That's that group. That's their identity in verse 10. Tonight we move into verse 11. Tomorrow night is so good. If you skip any, any this week, don't skip tomorrow. Tuesday's all right. Tomorrow's awesome. <laughs> Seriously, tomorrow's awesome. Tonight we're going to look at the effect. And he just lays this out. We'll see it as we go through it. He gives us the effect of letting this kind of person have free reign and access in your body. For whatever reason. You want to know what that kind of person will do in your church? We're going to look at it tonight verse 11. Tomorrow night is the effect that this person has in the church. And consequently, the effect your church will have, therefore, on a lost and dying world. So verse 11 is about what's going on in the church because of this person. Verse 12 is what's going on in the community because of this person having activity in the church. So there's this progression, and it just gets more uncomfortable from there. Now, quickly, just uh, highlighting the identity. The identity of this group, down in verse 10, is they are deceived. They're not wicked. They're They're not evil. In the kind of serial killer... Uh, Liar. Thief. They're just, uh, old time Nazarenes call it carnal. (laughs) Yeah, they're just, they're the best that they can be. They're the best that they can be. They're just not him. They judge services by a whole different standard. If you've been around the church any amount of time, you've had to have seen this. You've had to have seen this. They just don't. They don't have his direction, they don't have his passion, and at the core of their life, which is the diaphragm idea, is deception, they're just flat out deceived, they're just, they're walking in deception, they're thinking the old statutes of not being a murderer, not lying, not stealing, giving 10% is what it's all about, I go to church every Sunday, They don't realize that that does not produce life. And then that gets manifested in their homes and in the church. They're walking in deception. And they're talkers, which again, the word talking is the word Lego. That's a specific word that's used in the teaching, communicating of information. So it has the idea that these religious folk that are... See, it's really interesting. The religious folk are always the dedicated ones who are always there. This is not the... We're not talking about the fly by the seat of my pants kind of hit church every three or four weeks. Oh, they're here this week. See, these are they're on your, see, they'll get in the church board. They'll be on the finance committees. And they'll run your church board in this kind of a manner. See, they'll they'll run finance committees on this kind of manner. They'll structure services and worship songs and length, And the whole feel of the church, now think about that, it's the feel of the church will go from this to this. See, we don't do that. We don't go here. We don't You have this kind of a deal. That's them. they're talkers. Which I don't like the word talker. It it should be teachers. But they teach in vain. So it's, 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 uh, and the word vanity is a neat word. I think I didn't bring this up this morning, but um, the word vanity is, uh, it's tied, somehow it's it's translated foolishness in another context. And it's, the the idea of foolishness comes from the, uh, we've ever seen, you watch *Little House on the Prairie*. Yeah, *Little House on the Prairie*. Like, I uh, made the mistake over Christmas of recording all the episodes because they were having this big like weekend of *Little House on the Prairie*. And I was like, "That's like the greatest show ever!" So I hit record. There's like, there's hundreds of those things. Courtney comes home and says, "We have no more D V R space." I'm like, "Those kids!" You know, over. But I had like hundreds of them. And so I started, and I was like, I'm going to watch them all. And after like five, I was like, I'm deleting them. There's no way I can make it out yeah. through all these. But I ended up watching one of the old ones. It was out of order by chance. It was the one where Laura and Edward were, uh, they found the gold in the river. And Nellie, remember Nellie? <laughs> Nellie is trying to find out where they're going after school every day. And they're hunting their neighbor. That's such a good episode. And so they're going there, they're not realizing it's not real gold. I always forget it. It's not gold, it's called. Yeah, fool's gold. But there's like a. a... Pyrite. pyrite. That's it, pyrite. I always forget that. But it's fool's gold. And they take it in, and it looks like gold, feels like gold. And they're like, oh no, it's not gold. And they're like, ah, I'm so foolish. That's this word. It's. And it evokes, see, this evokes that kind of security. The effort that goes into that. See, when you're looking at a religious person. They're really difficult because they're so faithful. They really believe in this. Do they really think they're in? And it's so hard to look at a person who doesn't have the mind of Christ and convince them they don't have the mind of Christ. That's a Holy Spirit job. But it's really, really difficult. So that's who this group are. They're deceived. And in their deception, they're spreading that as if it's the real thing. And And again, the scholars tell us uh, if you ever read commentaries on this, which I'm sure you guys do all the time, they, that was the problem of the religious people. They're so devoted. So pictures that come to my mind are, you know, Muslim terrorists. You don't, get any, you don't get much more devoted than that. You don't get much more devoted than that. That's this group. I mean, they're just, they're ingrained in this. They were raised in this. What they heard, it's what they believe, all of that. And of course, they're unsubmitting. You cannot literally true community, and the idea of of rebellion in this context literally means it's a breakdown of community. You cannot have true community in the body of Christ without Jesus. Period. That's verse ten. Now, this is good stuff. Come into verse eleven. He moves into verse 11 and he says, now we've identified this person, we've described this person, they have this kind of relationship with God, which he's out there and I'm here and I absolutely believe that he exists. Hey, I'll go down with my shotgun, take down the Ten Commandments in my town, over my dead body. That's how committed they are. Now realizing this is not the message, take it. Take it. That's an old covenant pronouncement that you need him. But that person who made that pronouncement wants to come down and live in this body and see through these eyeballs. And processed through these ears, operating his hands and his feet. So this group here is man; they're just so radically immersed in this. Verse ten. When he comes into verse seven, he be, uh, eleven. He he moves into again the church context, and what the damage this person is causing in the body. Now he says in verse eleven, the beginning, they must be silenced. We're going to come back around in a minute to this word must. So I want you to remember this, and I'll, but I'll, I'll tell you here: this word is used a, a lot in, in the in the book of Matthew, in, in Matthew's gospel, and it's the word "must." It's necessity, but it's almost stronger than necessity. It's not an option, and it's not like, well, this. If we're going to do this, must must is we are going to do this, and this has to take place. It's used. Every time it's used in conjunction. Every time Jesus talks about the cross. The son of man must go to Jerusalem. That's where I'm headed. That is my life. Get behind me, Satan. I'm going right here. This must take place. That's a really strong term. It is absolutely foundational. You don't have anything outside of this. He uses that term to say they must be silent. Awesome word. Because silence is open mouth, stuff something in it. (laughs) Dude, dude, it's like, this is a perfect youth group term. This is the perfect youth group term. Open mouth, stuff something in it. In fact, we developed this year because of this verse at our church, we have, just like you do, we have um, Kleenexes, but we added boxes of what we call stuff rags. (laughs) And when anybody starts, we just grab one and run back there and just say Titus chapter 1 verse 11 on all of the little stuff right? I'm kidding. We don't do that. You didn't laugh so. it's either a bad joke or you thought I did it. They must be silenced. It literally means shut them up. It it gives you the impression that you're literally, it's not just to tell them to be quiet. It's that term. It's open mouth, stick something in. So it's, it's, this is a must. It's almost like when they start to talk, you were to run and just literally shut their mouth has physical implications to it. That's exciting. This is serious. They must be silenced. Oh, it's so hard. No, you don't understand. Grab them and drag them down the hall. You see how serious he is about this? Literally, not literally, often, throughout the New Testament, they have these kind of earnest earnestness on things that need to be done. But very rare does he attach physical implications to it. Now he does at times you know, cast the immoral brother from among you. You don't know what the word cast means in the original language. Cast. <laughs> like you would cast a fishing rod. Grab them and chuck them. In other words, the, the issue is so dire that this is how you handle it. If they will not walk, walk them. If they will not be quiet, stuff something in their mouth. That's how dangerous this group is. They must be silenced. And there are three aspects we're going to cover that this is the reason they must be silenced. He has the conjunction because they are ruining entire households. Now, the ruining of entire households, first off, the word ruin is used, and I broke down the biblical reference, and I lost it, or I got deleted. But that that was the word that's used for the cleansing of the temple. Somewhere in relationship to the cleansing of the temple. Jesus just didn't go through and turn over tables. He literally was attempting to ruin the ability of the money changers. He was trying to destroy the the circumstances by which that was taking place. It wasn't just a chiding. It was, I'm shutting this down. It It had the must thing translated or kind of woven into it. I'm taking what you're doing and I'm shutting it down. This ain't happening. We're not doing this. And there's urgency to that. Now the word household is tricky. And in fact, we find this term if you have if you want to scroll up uh, or put in uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 5, I think it is. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Or as I do, scroll up. The word household, that same Greek word is used in verse 5 when he's given a characteristic of a godly younger woman, that the, the godly younger woman is to be, in my translation translates it, busy at home. Home is, is the root is in there, the stem is, is in there, that, that word where we get the meaning. And there's two different Greek words in the New Testament that you can essentially translate home. One has to do with structure, one has to do with family or relationships. The one that's used in our passage in chapter 1 and here in chapter 2, verse 5, with the godly woman, has to do with family. So what Paul is insisting, everything in Christianity, he doesn't insist on structure. In fact, he doesn't, it's so interesting in all these letters, he doesn't talk about politics, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, talk about board meetings, how many people you have to have, he doesn't deal with any of the kind of business elements that are obviously really important to us and more to him. It's all about interpersonal relationships and the value of of people living life together and how dangerous that is. In the family, a woman is to give herself. That's got to get busy. She is to give herself to the authority over the home, which is the family. That same Greek word is used. You remember the story where Paul and Silas are thrown in prison, and they're in the inner cell. And it's midnight. They, they've been beaten. They're in stocks. And the text tells us in Acts 16, I think it is, um, that they're praying and singing hymns to God. And it's after midnight. And the other prisoners aren't complaining. You know, they're not saying shut. You know, all the things we would consider, you know, assume they're doing. They're listening, the text says. And then about midnight, the doors fly open, chains fall loose. Big old world. I mean, who knows knew, who knew what it looks like? And it's crazy in the text, none of the prisoners run. There was no like jailbreak. They're all just standing there. The jailer pulls his sword, he's gonna kill himself. He's like, they're all gone, I'm toast. And Paul says, Don't kill yourself. No one's no one's run. The jailer's like, seriously? Actually, that's not in the text. But you know that happened. He goes and grabs Paul and Silas, drags them out, says, What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, You must be baptized. You and your whole household. That's his term. So it's unbiblical to think that our spouses, our daughters are limited to kind of a barefoot and pregnant future (laughs) in the kitchen. Also attributed to the little house in the prairie days version of Christianity which does not exist. It's it's shockingly scary how much culture has influenced the message of the gospel, which is why you and I have got to be in the Word. I mean, literally, got to be in the Word. What's going on in verse uh, 11 of chapter 1 as Paul's talking about this group, the damage that this religious group causes begins in the family. It begins in the home. In other words, I I don't know if you've ever... How you know, many people have I met in the church who grow up in this kind of relationship structure in the home and end up hating church? And it's so difficult to talk to them about Jesus. No, I'm not into that. I, I always look at them and say, uh, when, when, I'm, when I'm talking with people and, and you know, I hear I'm a minister, I'm like, oh, I'm not into the church. I always say, I'm a minister. They're like, you're, you're a minister. I'm like, Yeah, I know. They're like, You're weird. Well, I hate church. Yeah, me too. You can't say that. God, I hate all the things he hates. I hate Christians. Me too. Because when, when he's talking about Christians, he's talking about Christians. When he's talking about church, he's talking about church. When he's talking about all the stuff, that he's talking about this. And I agree, I hate that stuff. In fact, I hate it worse than he hates it. He has no clue. He's probably never. Seen, he's probably seen this, but it gets it sh- gets shrouded in this. You know, how many teenagers think about you've already seen this. So think of how many kids you've seen who grow up in church, and maybe the church wasn't necessarily all together like this, but somehow teens get out of church, get out of get out of the protection and the umbrella of the parents, and go off to college. And this is all they have. And they never come back. They never come back. And at best, they kind of figure out when they get married, well, my kid's at church. It's a good thing. Wanted to believe in Jesus, Want to go to heaven. See, that's this kind of language. And we're losing entire generations to that. Literally. This is what he's talking about. I told Steve I was going to use this for church, but this was several years ago. He, he mentors, you guys know Steve Schaumann, right? He's mentored young men from time to time your body, whether you know it or not. <laughs> and he and I were talking about a specific young man a few years ago, and the things that this kid was involved in, and the damage he was doing to himself, and his future wife, and, and just how he, he, he is on all involved in the internet. And when he was talking to me about it, you know, my, my response was, oh man, that's just, seriously? And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, oh, but he's come so far. And the way he was talking to him was filled with grace and I'm on your side. And I, and I seriously remember thinking, everyone needs someone like that in their corner. That's, that's supposed to be the body. And that's not this. That's not this. See, this is always an accusatory. This is always you don't measure up. This is always surface. It's not diving in. That's what this is. See, none of this is in, none of this is in a vacuum. Um, I was in uh, I was in uh, Missouri. Uh, Carthage, first church of the Nazarene. Anybody ever been to Carthage, first church of the Nazarene? Yeah. Dustin was Dustin Lever there when you guys were there? That guy's ridiculously awesome. I mean, he's the most monotone boring guy ever. But his spiritual walk is just he's ridiculously awesome. This guy is incredible. And uh, I was holding a Revival it's a True Story. Uh I was holding a revival for him. and they're a larger church, you know. And right before the service, like 10 minutes before start, all these people were coming in. This young man <laughs> This young man comes sprinting in, and you, of course, the front of their church is all glass, you know, over underneath the overhang. This young kid's coming running up the street; you can see him, and I'm like, "What?" And there's cop cars following him. And I was like, "Dude!" And we didn't, you know, I didn't think to pull out my phone, but he runs in the, he runs to the church, runs in the front door, and then runs all the way down the hall. The cars, are like cop cars, are sliding in the parking lot. And I was like, "This is awesome." <laughs> And he goes running in, and he he barricades himself in the pastor's office. And you know everybody's running around trying to find Destin. And Destin comes, and the door's locked, and he's banging on it, and he tells him to go get the key. He didn't have the key, and all this. And so the cops come in front, and they're like, "Where is he?" He was he had been caught for something, and they were chasing him. The first place that that kid chose to run to was to his pastor. Is that awesome? And I was witness to what Dustin said. They're like, well we need him right now and he's like, not gonna to talk to him. And they said, no, he's going to jail. You know he did He, he robbed me. He had there was a gun involved in all this. And and Dustin uh, said, I'm talking to him and they said, Sir, don't interfere. And he goes, Arrest me! That was Dustin, this little wild little, you know, boring fellow. He's like, Arrest me! And I was like, Yeah, me too! You know? <laughs> and then he goes in, they let him in, he went in and prayed again to, to talk to the kid for like twenty minutes and then took him out and walked him up the cops and took him to jail. That, that's not the product of this. See, that's the product of I'm on your side. See, that's not the product of get your act together. That's not the product of, you know, well, you know, take a cold shower. See, that's not, that's not the product of this. So, this group here is literally ruining the fabric of the family. In fact, he goes on and says, They're not only ruining the fabric of the family, but why they're ruining the fabric of the family is they're teaching, my translation says teaching, what is necessary. Which is not a very good translation. They must be sons because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. That's a terrible translation. It literally should be translated, they're teaching what what is not must. Which is the same Greek word that's used up at the beginning of verse 11. In other words, the things that are absolutely foundational, they're not teaching. They're teaching stuff like, you know, don't kill. When they should be teaching, see as he sees. Don't have sex before marriage instead of see young women, young, young men the way they They're teaching things that are just not priority. They're wrapped up in things and they're concerned about the outward, the outward stuff. clothing styles. And I, I do. I've got an 11-year-old daughter and it's so difficult. Oh, girls. <laughs> <laughs> girls. And i the challenge of my daughter is, is not to control her clothing, which I do anyway. <laughs> but says she might see herself through his eyes and dress accordingly. I confessed at lunch today, I flipped my lid this last week. I was a bad dad. I went in her room and I grabbed like three or four outfits and I just threw them away. (laughs) Then I felt guilty so I took her shopping. I did, and I bought her a whole new wardrobe of what was appropriate, terrible, Ah, you know. I, did. I spent all this money on her and we picked it out together and it made a great time but I just this creeps into my language when I want I want her to see the way that he sees her see herself get her self esteem by the way that, that that he sees her I mean she's under the she's under this and, and literally she'd be great but she has to hang out with your kids so it's you know <laughs> She comes back from church with wanting to play these video games, and wanting to do these apps, and wanting to wear these kind of clothes and this kind of makeup and this kind of stuff. And she's eleven. <laughs> Girls. <laughs> and so when there's this challenge of living in a, in a culture where it's trying to shape her, where I want Jesus to shape her. The only chance she has, because this is just going to scare her away. It's literally going to run her off. I give this illustration. I probably beat it to death. But I started to deal with this in terms of fighting in our home. Our kids, you know, fight. They just fight. I love them to be like the Gliddens where they all just play together. I just feel like when they get up, they're all just like hugging each other and running around, skipping. and, And they're just such a great family. You know, Just, yeah. They call each other four or five times a day just to check on each other. I wanted my kids to be like that. They're not. They're terrible. And so... But it was so hard because you can't, I don't want to put rules of no hitting. And the first time this came about with my kids was CJ had some friends over and he had two or three of his buddies from church. churches a few years ago and he didn't want to include Elena in the games. You know, he didn't want his little sister hanging around and he was like 12 or 11 and she was what, eight or something. And you know, he didn't want his little sister, I get that. And I, I was okay with him not wanting, but he was so calloused, you know? And she's like going in a room bawling. He's like, would you keep it down? We're trying to play in here. You know, he's like that calloused about it. <laughs> and we were praying about it. And I didn't like, you can't force, you can't force him to include her. You, you, this is hard. Because this is not going to cut it, you know? And you. You're, you're, I'm wanting him to see this, and it's so right there. And it didn't happen until like two weeks later, we went up to Indiana, and then he had some older cousins, and they were playing video games, and they excluded him. And I'm looking for him, and Atlanta comes in, and she loves her big brother. He's in the bathroom crying. And I was like, it just popped in my mind. I'm like, teaching opportunity. <laughs> and so I go, and I sit down with him, and I comforted him, and that's not fair, and I just totally took his side, which is true, because my sister's kids are heathens. And so I totally <laughs> took his side, and, you know, loved on him and agreed with him. And I brought him back to his sister. I said, do you see how you're feeling now? He's like, yeah. I said, no one should ever have to feel that. He's like, no. I'm like, that's how your sister felt. And he still didn't get it. <laughs> I was like, no, this is like the perfect, you know. But that's, that's, this is, we don't teach this. We teach this. Now, structure's not bad. Rules are not bad. This can't be like, well, you know, God, just help him to go to. It's not that. So you've got to have rules. you got to have, you know, but in the midst of all of that, and you've got to. My kids are going to church, but I don't want them to go to church. I want them to go to church. And I try not to look over, you know, and as you're sitting there, kind of staring off the ground, a lot of times the way you do. I, I don't want them to just sit there, you know. And I want them to experience worship and in that time. And Well, at least during church, Jeremiah, that, that ain't good enough. Well, they're good kids. All kids are like that. And you hear that. See, all that is this kind of language. That'll ruin your kid. They've got to know you. I've got a phenomenal opportunity this uh, Wednesday and thir- Thursday with how many junior hires? 200? Mm-hmm. 150? How many? 500. Oh, yes. <laughs> 500. <laughs> it <something> like 500 <laughs> And you just, it's that time in their life where Jesus can break through and there's a bigger world that they're going to live in. And that bigger world is God wants to come down and live in your body. So literally, they must be silenced because they're destroying families by teaching things that are just not priority, like don't hit. And obviously don't hit. But you should never want to hit. Include your sister. I should see I shouldn't be I should never have to harp on that. I'll be devastated as a father. I'll be devastated as a father if I'm talking about that stuff when they're 20 years old. Seriously, I'll be devastated. Because they've lived Last thing, this is the best. The reason they're—hear me, please. The reason they're teaching things that are not must is for dishonest gain. If you look in the New Testament, everywhere gain is talked about, it's almost exclusively talked about in terms of finances. But their teaching is dishonest gain, which it has to do with—it has to do with self advancement. And the dishonest part, in other words, what they're teaching is for uh, self-advancement, but dishonest is they're cloaking it. In other words, all of their teaching, all of their insistence, all of what they're pouring over your kids, all of what they're teaching your spouse, is all for selfish gain. But they cloak it so it doesn't look like it's for selfish gain. You're like, what would that look like? I have never heard anybody threaten to leave the church Because the music did not relate to the culture in which they live, we've got to change the music. Why? No one's being saved, and I'm going somewhere else. I've been like, you are my idol. Why do they want to? Why do they want to change the music? They don't like it. Selfish game, which is not seeing the way he sees. it. You know we got a problem in the nursery. You know we got a violent kid. we're really concerned about. Him. Why? Well he's beating up my kid. Yeah, the reason I'm bringing it to attention is not because we have a violent kid. It's because your kid's beating up my kid. And we've got to help him. we got to help that kid. <laughs> You're not thinking about my kid. You're thinking about the black and blue eyes that your kid has. Your kid has. See, all the motivation, that's what he's saying. See, this is all motivated by self-interest somehow. And if you think about that, how often have I contributed to that? See, I tend to really be into things that are for me. That's the dishonest gain stuff. And again, it's prominent to see that in the music choice, my wife, music choices and kids, you know, people really begin to harp about uh, children's ministry, which they should when it's their children. See, what if we were motivated driven by things that he's driven by? My wife is awesome. You guys must know who Corinda She's just incredible. And I get to see this firsthand. I mean, she is incredible. I get to see this firsthand. Uh, Alana came home. And how that works in our family, this obviously doesn't happen to your family. But when one kid goes to one parent and it doesn't go well, they go to the other parent. It probably never happens. But my daughter comes to me, and I'm just a sucker for Elena. I don't know. It's, it's unfair. But she comes to me, and one of the boys in the class, after the class, he got mad and ran up and hit her. And she's not about to hit back, which I think is totally unfair, or something. And, of course, my normal response to that is aggression. You know, I'm going to call the parents, and I'm talking about it right now. You know, keep your kid off me, off my daughter. And I, I bring it to Corinda. Because obviously there's always got to be another side, which most of the time, my, my it's all my daughter. She's absolutely right. It's always exactly the way she paints the picture, obviously. But I go to Corinda, and she's telling me the whole story. And there was no other story that came up and hit her. But then Corinda looked at me and goes, but you just don't understand the kind of home life he comes from. She had a whole different perspective of the situation than I did. And she's obviously interested in safeguards and all of that. But when I look, I'm watching her. We're sitting down with Elena and living her. And I'm watching Corinda talk to her and plead with her. And, 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 and what Corinda is seeing with this young boy, what she feels, she's trying to communicate that to Elena. And, and she's 11. <laughs> Girls. <laughs> but... She's trying to talk with her. I can just see that oozing out of my wife. And I talked to my son later, and I'm like, dude, you've got to find a woman like that. (laughs) Seriously, you've got to find a woman like that. They're rare. They're rare. That's the kind of mom I want I want mentoring my kids. That's the kind of mother I want over my children. That's the kind of woman I want to be married to. That's walking in tune with the spirit. That's the kind of father that, that... the kind of man you look for. That's the kind of person you want to spend the rest of your life with. They're ruining the whole households, not only by teaching what's not necessary, but they're doing that for reasons that are not motivated by him. Yeah, we can't let them in here, ruin our carpet. See, the devastating thing about reaching a lost world is they bring all of their junk into your home. In among your kids. And it gets messy. This is what he's talking about. That you're allowing this to exist in the church. Opinions and attitudes and teachings. And... Attitude is such a big one. Sidelong glances. They're laying they teach your kids that. My daughter's picked up this thing where she'll like roll her eyes and like move her head. Fine. I'm like, don't act like that lady at church. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it right now. But they picked that kind of, that, that kind of... Jesus. There is no amount of church that can replace your heart, your perspective, your drive, your passing. I used to, I was almost duped when I when I heard, I would hear people talk about, you know, their wayward child. Well, they know the truth. They know they know God's real. Yeah, Satan knows God's real. They know the truth. They've heard the truth. Yeah. But are they living with the man? Are they living with him? Are they experiencing his heart, in their their heart? You've hidden these things from the wise. What if it's not about correct theology? and your focus and your, your tenderness and your care. I want them to see, Jesus, how you are to me, and how you feel about me and how you see me and how you, and how you talk to me. I want them to see all of that. I want them to live with you in my body. I want them to spend the time, my kids, in my home, by the time they graduate. I want them to realize that real, not facts and information that you exist, right. but that you can live inside of a person's life and change them. Amen. I want to I emphasize what is a must in my home. All the ministries of our body, all the ministries of the church. a little bit more overrated in. correct language I just think all that stuff will work itself out in light of you if I'm really after you you're going to reveal yourself in the word and I'm going to be in the word I'm going to be after you I'm going to have your heart because I'm different we, we cohabitate we share this body when I go home tonight and I lay down on my pillow in my motel room, you are with me. You're always with me. Jesus, we looked at your work tonight, and I think you're speaking to some of us in terms of how we're how we're behaving at our jobs, how the language we use, our approach to parenting. Insisting upon in the church. And what's so bizarre about the whole study, which I've struggled with, Lord, ever since I studied this, how do you how do you present an ending to this? Because we can't go through and fix all these issues. What if the only issue we fix is our intimacy and tightness with you? I just gotta be tighter with you. I've got to be a Christian, I've got to stop playing. Stop making excuses. Well, hey, I go to church and no one's perfect at oh, all. I got to be typing it. I got to fall asleep thinking about that. I got to be disappointed that I don't hear your voice like I want to hear your voice.